For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to two different Bible passages. First, we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 at verse 12, and we will read to the end of the chapter. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then we have the verse of the text. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we read verses 1 through 7 there. So 2 Timothy chapter 1. And the verse that will catch our attention here is verse 6. So here the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy towards the end of his, Paul's life. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, And now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So far we read from God's word. In the first passage that we read in... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
The Apostle Paul comes to the end of his letter with all of these staccato commands. Is all these brief commands that he gives to the church. Commands like, rejoice always. He says, pray without ceasing. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. And then in the middle of there, we find the command we're looking at, do not quench the spirit. He says, do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Abstain from every kind of evil. And there's more. Now, what's striking about all of these commands is that they are brief. They're to the point. They come from the Apostle Paul almost like from a machine gun, one after another. And what stands out to me is the striking brevity of all these commands. And Paul uses simple words. In our Bibles, many of the words are translated with just one syllable. So these commands seem to be very straightforward. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice in the Lord. And then we have the text. Do not quench the spirit. Once again, all of those words are very straightforward. Some monosyllabic words. One syllable. Do not quench the... And then spirit, true, it has two syllables to that word. But they're straightforward words. And we could go through what those words mean. And I think everybody here in church, even the kids, would know what those words mean. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about what quench means. But even our children know who the Holy Spirit is. And so it seems very simple, a very simple command, a very brief command, a very succinct command. Do not quench the Spirit. But here's the thing. It is an utterly profound exhortation. What can the Apostle Paul possibly mean by this? Do not quench the Spirit. Now, I'm doing something today that I would never encourage my students to do, that is to have sort of two texts. I read from those two different scripture passages because basically there's a negative text verse here in First Thessalonians and in the other passage in Timothy. We have a positive command. But, you know, as Reformed pastors, when we preach the Heidelberg Catechism in an appropriate way, what do we have to do? Well, we have to deal with two different texts, don't we? We have, to, we have to teach, well, this is what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism. This is what we believe. But we also, we work with a scripture text, don't we? Because we want to have a fresh exegesis to expand on what the Catechism is teaching there. So here we have a negative command and a positive command. The negative command is, do not quench the Spirit. But then Paul says to Timothy positively, he says, fan into flame the gift that the Holy Spirit has given to you. Since we often want to be positive, I picked a positive title for the sermon. Fanning into flame the Spirit. We're going to look into the meaning of that, and then secondly, the manner. How do we do that? How must the church in Thessalonica do that, and and then what are the consequences of not fanning into flame the Spirit or of doing so?
Well, let's start with a negative command, which is here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. The negative command is, do not quench the spirit. The Apostle Paul is saying, do not put out the spirit's fire. Now that is a striking command. What can he mean by that? What can Paul mean when he says, do not quench the spirit? Now kids, you should be very familiar with what it means to quench a fire. Right now, what are they trying to do in Canada? Well, I'm not sure they're trying all that hard with many of the forest fires. But with some of them, they're trying to quench them. What does that mean? It means they're trying to extinguish the fire. This past week, it was so hazy by my home, I could only see about a half a mile away because all the smoke coming in from Canada. And then your governor apparently is telling you, don't mow your lawn, don't fill your car with gas because of the bad air. So what does it mean to quench? Well, the Bible uses this language to talk about how if there's a blazing fire, it needs to be quenched, to be put out, to be extinguished. We have fire extinguishers in our kitchens, don't we? What's that fire extinguisher there for? Well, kids, it's there if if suddenly your mom leaves something on the stove and some oil and grease is on there and a fire starts, you can quickly grab that fire extinguisher. If you know how to run it, you can put the fire up, extinguish it, or Paul would say to quench it. In the Bible, we read about how the lamps, for example, in the tabernacle or temple were to be quenched. Or fires on the altar were quenched. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Isaiah 42, verse 3, uses the very same Greek word that Paul has here to talk about how when the Messiah comes, he will be so tender and gentle that the smoking flax he will not quench. That is, if we just have a little spark of faith and we're very weak, the Messiah will make sure that the spark doesn't go out. This word is, this language and word are used in the Old Testament too when God talks about how he is so angry with the kingdom of Judah because of their idolatry that he says that my anger will not be quenched. He has a fiery anger. Jesus tells us in Mark 9 that hell is a place where the fire is not quenched. The same word is used to refer to how the foolish virgins had lamps that were extinguished. This word is also used in a figurative way in the Bible. So, for example, in the Septuagint, it translates statements like this using our same word. Many waters cannot quench love. Talking about the power of love. Paul in Ephesians 6 talks about how The shield of faith is something that the believing soldier holds up, and with it he can quench the fiery darts of the evil one. And the ideas of how Satan, you know, fires temptations at us that are like arrows that have flaming pitch on them. And then the result, what happens is that when it hits into our faith, that is our confession, what we believe, then the flame is extinguished. And so Paul is using the same word here in a figurative sense here when he says, do not quench the spirit. 
So, kid, do you understand what's going on here? Somehow the Apostle Paul is saying there's something we may not do, and what we may not do is quench, put out, extinguish the Holy Spirit, just like you extinguish a fire. One time my mom told me that I needed to quench a fire, my cousin and I, when we were boys. We loved fires. We loved having fires. We loved camping out in the summertime. And then we decided that right next to our front porch, where we had some 80-year-old hydrangeas, that we decided we would just start some little fires there right next, and we figured no one could see us, and we didn't think there was any danger. And so there we are, and then my mom came out the front door. And you know what she told us? She said, boys, put out that fire. And she said to my cousin Steve, you go home. So we were supposed to quench the fire. We weren't supposed to have a fire burning right next to the house. But here we're told, do not quench the spirit. You know, fire is the very fitting figure of God, the Holy Spirit, isn't it? John the Baptist had said that when Jesus came, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he said. And then what happened on Pentecost Sunday? While the disciples were gathered, suddenly the Holy Spirit appeared in flames like fire over the heads of the believers. One of the commentators named Bengal says, where the Spirit is, he burns. We could call Jesus the baptizer. Jesus is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it's a very fitting figure. Why? Because fire illuminates, just like we have lights in our church building, because they illuminate things. Fire illuminates. The Holy Spirit is God, the illuminator, who enables us to see Jesus as the Savior, as the only begotten Son of God. He enables us to see Jesus crucified and risen for us. So he is the illuminator. But the Holy Spirit also is pictured as fire because he burns. You know, the Bible has a lot of hard things to talk about, how God needs to purify and refine and burn our faith. God sends us through hard trials sometimes because he's trying to purify us, burn away sin. And God the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier. So it's no wonder he is pictured like fire. Also, fire provides warmth. And he provides the warmth of love in our hearts and lives. He draws us to the Father and to the Son. So the Apostle Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. But what can that possibly mean? What does it mean that we can quench the Holy Spirit? What we must conclude from this command is that it it is possible to quench God, the Holy Spirit. That's quite something. Think that through. If the Apostle Paul says, do not quench the Spirit, that implies that it is possible to do this involves. It is possible to quench God, the Holy Spirit. But what can this mean? Does this mean that the person of the Holy Spirit can somehow be put out? Like you spray 
some fire extinguisher on a campfire and it goes out. Can we cause God the Holy Spirit in his person to cease to exist? No, the very idea is blasphemy, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is eternal God. The Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Are we saying that somehow the deity of God, the Holy Spirit, can be obliterated and cease to exist? Once again, that's, that's impossible because the Holy Spirit is God. He is divine. He is the I am who I am. He is the one who always has been and always will be. He is the God who is. No, it is impossible and unthinkable that somehow we could put out and put out of existence the person or the divine being of God or the Holy Spirit. I mean, you might as well get on a spaceship and head towards the sun with a little squirt gun like you kids spray each other with and say, well, I'm going to take a spaceship to the sun and I'm going to try to put out the sun with my squirt gun. No, God the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. He shall exist ever and always. He is immortal God. So what is the Apostle Paul talking about then? Is he talking about certain operations of God, the Holy Spirit? What do we confess when we say the acronym TULIP and we come to the I there? T is for total depravity. U is for unconditional election. L is for limited atonement. I is for irresistible grace. P is for the preservation of the saints. Can we say that this, well, apparently the Arminians are right. That God, the Holy Spirit's mighty operations are resistible after all. But once again, we know that's not true, do we? Because what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that God, the Holy Spirit, is the regenerator. And guess what? When God, the Holy Spirit, wants to blow into an elect sinner's life and cause them to be born from above, that is an irresistible operation. Nothing can resist it. No one can resist it. And of course, no one wants to resist his saving activities either. God makes us willing in the day of his power. So in other words... The Bible teaches that there is an effectual call. Those whom he predestines, he also calls through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that too is irresistible. It's an effectual call. That's the reason why we are Christians, because the Spirit has regenerated us. He's effectually called us. And those operations cannot be resisted either. So what is Paul talking about then? Well, here, the Apostle Paul is identifying certain things that God the Holy Spirit produces and means of grace that he provides with the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is that there are certain operations of the Holy Spirit, the provision of means of grace, for example, that can be ignored. If this morning, for example, we... We ignore the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And we act like he is not here. 
when the Holy Spirit gives us guidance and works in our souls so that we realize that there's something we should do and we resist, that's when we quench the Holy Spirit. So here the Apostle Paul is identifying the Holy Spirit with certain works that the Christian can disregard. When we disregard or reject certain gifts that the Holy Spirit provides, Paul is saying we quench the Spirit. One way is, for example, is that the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the Word as a means of grace. That's why the Reformed Confessions talk about how the Word preached is the Word of God. You know, just like if you're a carpenter or if you have a different job, you have like a a place where you work and you have the sort of instruments that you use, the tools that you use. God, the Holy Spirit, has certain ways in which he strengthens and sanctifies his people. And one big way in which he does that is through the preaching of the word of God. So we quench the spirit if we come to church and we just sit there and we are hearers of the word, but not doers. Perfect example of quenching the Holy Spirit. If you allow the word to go in one ear and out the other, you quench the spirit. Right down the road from my house, there's a little Methodist church. And you know what they do for the whole summer? Their sign advertises it. They cancel church. They cancel church for the whole summer. What are they doing? They are quenching the Spirit because what does the Spirit do? How does He build up the saints in the most holy faith? Through the preaching of the Word. You quench the Spirit if, if your wife says, Well, let's pray. You're driving down the road, I say, Let's pray for someone. So people in our church, and you say, No, I, I, don't, I don't want to pray. Okay, you quench the spirit. Your wife has been given the desire by the Holy Spirit to pray for someone, and you quench it. What if a family member says, okay, after devotions, let's sing together. Let's get our psalter hymnals out, and let's sing around the table. And you say, no, I'm, I don't want to sing. You quench the spirit. We quench the spirit when the spirit gives us godly impulses. And we have those throughout the week. He gives us godly impulses that he gives us through our understanding of what God's word teaches. And yet we say no. We quench the spirit if, as a dad, when it's time to teach our children around the table and we read a Bible passage and we just read right through the chapter and we don't try to explain it and simplify it and clarify it for our little kids. We quench the spirit. We quench the spirit when the spirit gives us a sense that, no, we need to take time out of the busyness of life and sit down and just read our Bibles and meditate on the word. And then we think there's, there's all these things to do And so we never sit down and just quietly read and meditate on the word. Even though we know very well, you you and I know very well what Psalm 1 says. 
that blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. We quench the spirit when we don't want to meditate on the word. And we're lazy. We don't want to memorize the word, even though the Bible, once again, gives us good examples about how the psalmist says, I hide your word in my heart so I would not sin against you. We quench the spirit. I think we quench the spirit, too, when we read the Bible and we don't pray for illumination. In fact, my brother, when he was in seminary, was assigned this text in seminary in the classroom for exegesis class. A week later, he read his exegesis on this passage, quench not the spirit. And you know what his professor said? He said, you've quenched the spirit. Now, he must have thought my brother did not dive deeply and meditate appropriately on what this text was saying. We quench the spirit when we live in unconfessed sin. That's why David, remember, needed to pray, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with your generous spirit. So, so when the Apostle Paul says, do not quench the spirit, what he's saying is, do not, do not put out these good impulses that God, the Holy Spirit, is giving to you. Don't reject the means of grace that God the Holy Spirit provides for you to grow in grace and in knowledge and in love for God and living for his glory. But why does Paul use such strong language? Why does he talk about these things in terms of quenching God the Holy Spirit himself? Well, the reason is this. The injury, the dishonor, redounds and rebounds to God the Holy Spirit. In other words, if we say, well, I'm really too busy and I have too much going on in life to meditate on God's word, who do we dishonor? God the Holy Spirit, because, of course, the scriptures are God-breathed. They come from God the Holy Spirit. And if we treat the preaching of the word lightly, and we hear God's ministers calling us to lives of faithfulness, but we just do not want to give up our pet sins, Who are we dishonoring? We're dishonoring Christ's Spirit who empowers his ministers to bring the word. So the injury redounds and rebounds back to God the Holy Spirit. And so that's why Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. By the way, the Apostle Paul uses the plural verb here too. He says, Do not y'all quench the spirit. Notice he's not just saying that the church as a whole does this all together, but the point is individually, whether you're a dad or a mom or a kid, you have a warning here. Don't quench the spirit. So that's the negative command that comes to each one of us. And then we have the positive command which is found in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. There the apostle Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, what's striking there is that 
the Apostle Paul says we are to fan into flame the gifts of God. Now, the title of my sermon is Fanning into Flame the Spirit because I think if, if God in the other passage is able to identify certain works of the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit, we can certainly identify some of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives with him too. But in this passage, we're being told, fan into flame the gifts that God the Holy Spirit has given to you. Now, I love in this context how the Apostle Paul says in verse 7, he says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's very interesting here how the Holy Spirit who has been given to us takes away our fears, causes our, our fears about things to flee away, and he gives to us spiritual power, and he gives to us love, love for God and love for the neighbor. But positively here, notice what you're being exhorted to do. You're being exhorted, you're being told to do something. Fan into flame the gift that God the Holy Spirit has given to you. Here the Apostle Paul is talking to Timothy. He's talking about the various gifts that God has given to Timothy. We're not, it's not clear what exactly all those gifts are. Certainly they're gifts of teaching. They're probably gifts of rebuking. They're certainly pastoral gifts. And isn't it amazing how God the Holy Spirit showers all kinds of gifts upon the body of Christ. We're all members of one body, aren't we? But shower with all these unique gifts. And now look what you're being told. God the Holy Spirit has given you these gifts. Fan them into flames. I saw in the bulletin that you have a church camping, out, uh, some type of outing planned in the near future. You probably have some campfires. I know in some, some states they're saying no campfires this year because of the drought conditions. But hopefully you'll be able to have some campfires. Well, when I was a kid, it was my dad's view that on vacation when we went camping that my mom got a break from cooking. So my dad would do all the cooking. So morning would come and it would be great because my dad would be out there and he would get the fire that had been burning the night before, get it going again, and we would have eggs and bacon over the campfire. The best way to eat it. But what would my dad do every morning? I distinctly remember it. He would take a paper plate. And maybe you've seen someone do this before. He'd take a paper plate and he'd dig down and get some of the coals in the fire going. And he'd start taking that paper plate and he'd start fanning the flames. And he'd put a few other little sticks on top of it. And guess what happened? Due to the oxygen that's being fanned towards the flame, the fire would take off again. It would start burning and he'd have a fire so he could cook our bacon and our eggs. The Apostle Paul says that's what you need to do with the gifts that God the Holy Spirit has given to you. You need to fan them into flames. Notice the danger. The danger is that the fire kind of goes out. The danger is that we don't develop our gifts. We don't use the gifts that God has given to us. The fire is burning, but it might be a little low. So Paul says to Timothy, rekindle the fire. Elsewhere, Paul uses similar analogies that deal with fire and so on. He says, in Romans, he says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent. There's boiling in spirit. Serve the Lord. So here, the Apostle Paul is saying, be on fire. Fan the gifts that you have into flames. If the Lord has given you the gift of teaching, well then study 
so that you can effectively teach the word. The Lord has given you a gift of prayer. Well, then pray. Has the Lord given you the gift of hospitality? Well, invite some people over from church. In some of our churches, it seems like because the churches have become a little wealthier, it's more often that people simply will go out to a fancy together, but they're not in each other's homes so much. But one of the qualifications for an office bearer even. And therefore, a virtue of every Christian man is that he shows hospitality. If you have insight into the word, well then lead a Bible study. Whatever gifts the Lord has given you, fan them into flames. If necessary, rebuild the family altar. This past week, I haven't had an African-American pastor out of South Chicago over to my home, and we talked about the family altar. He said, my grandpa and grandma's generation in the South, in the black church, read the Bible at every meal. And he talked about how in South Chicago now, there needs to be a rebuilding of the family altar. Dads need to fan into flames the abilities God has given them to teach and to lead. Now, how exactly are we to do this? How exactly was the church in Thessalonica, for example, quenching the spirit? Now, when Pentecostals come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what they want to claim is that the great evil in the church of Thessalonica is that there were some people who weren't supporting the speaking of tongues or people who received new revelations. And then you can see what their application would be for today. They would say, the Reformed churches, you guys quench the spirit because you do not support the speaking of tongues or new revelations and, and new dreams. So they claim that in this context, that's exactly what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is dealing with particularly. But actually, if you look back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you see that the Apostle Paul is not dealing with any particular error in that respect. The Apostle Paul is simply giving all kinds of general commands. He says things like, rejoice always. You know, we quench the Holy Spirit if we do not rejoice always. He, after all, is the joy giver, remember. So if the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and and exhorting us that we can fight for joy in the Lord and joy in the midst of trials, we quench the Spirit. He says, pray without ceasing. Once again, we quench the Spirit when we do not pray as the Spirit gives us impulses to do that. When we're ungrateful, we quench the spirit. So the Apostle Paul is simply giving a whole bunch of different general commands. It's not like in the church of Thessalonica there's a particular issue, for example, with how people are dealing with speaking in tongues. Now later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul would have to deal with how the Corinthians were misusing and abusing the speaking of tongues in their church. Now, it's true that in apostolic times, of course, there were new revelations. And in verse 20, the verse that follows our text in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Now, even here, 
The question is, what is referred to by prophecies there? The reality in the Bible is that the word prophecy sometimes is referred to not only foretelling, but forthtelling. That is, when God's word is taught clearly, we must not fight against that. Now, if Paul is referring to new revelations that happened, well, that's true. They did happen in the apostolic times. There were new prophecies given, although now in these last days, having been given the entire sacred scriptures, we have, of course, a finished canon, and we don't receive new revelations anymore. And then the point is this, that we may not quench the spirit by rejecting what God teaches in his word. And so we're told we must not quench the spirit by failing to rejoice or not complying with the, the, the motions of the good spirit. Um, we need to do things like sing from the heart. You know, when we sing the Psalms, don't just, don't just mouth songs, sing from the heart. Um, hide God's word in your heart. John Christosom said that we quench the spirit when we live an impure life. Great golden-tongued preacher in Ephesus and then Constantinople said, if anyone pours water or dirt upon the light of a lamp, it goes out. And this also happens if they simply pour all of the oil out of it. In the same manner, the gift of grace is extinguished. If you've filled your mind with earthly things, if you've given yourself up to the cares of daily business, you've already quenched the spirit. The flame goes out when there is not enough oil, that is, when we do not show charity. By that he means love. John Calvin said we quench the spirit when we do not grow in holiness. He said, those also quench the spirit who instead of stirring up as they ought more and more by daily progress, the sparks that God has kindled in them do by their negligence make void the gifts of God. There's other ways too that we can quench the Holy Spirit in these last days. One way we can quench the spirit is if we like The American church at large, we have an obsession with psychological solutions to spiritual problems. John MacArthur talks about this. He says, psychological sanctification has become a substitute for the spirit-filled life. What point is there in seeking the Holy Spirit's comfort if, after all, deep-seated emotional problems can be addressed only by a trained psychologist or if people can come to grips with their lives only by getting in touch with their childhood or if the answers to our deepest hurts are buried deep within us? If those things are true, we don't need an advocate. We need a therapist. I think it was John Piper who challenged people who acted like the Holy Spirit was just like a a Band-Aid compared to deep-rooted surgery that somehow psychologists can provide. So the point is, we quench the spirit when we don't realize how the spirit can help us with our challenges. And this also needs to be said, too. You know how the American church can quench the spirit? We can grieve the spirit by the false mysticism of the Pentecostal movement, in which... This movement claims to treasure the Spirit's work, but guess what they do? They quench God, the Holy Spirit's purpose, which is to illuminate Christ, Christ crucified, Christ as the Redeemer, and his work on behalf of his people. 
And instead, they try to somehow make the Holy Spirit in a wrong way central. And then, of course, there's all this hype and false emotionalism. You know, some of the early black Reformed preachers made the point that God does not sanctify his church through hype and empty emotionalism. He sanctifies his people, they said, through the preaching of the Ten Commandments. Years ago, when I was a student at Calvin College, a bunch of my friends said, let's go to Chicago and let's go to a Bulls-Pistons NBA basketball game. So we went there and some of my friends were from the Chicago area. Others were from Grand Rapids, from Michigan, Grand Rapids area. And so we arrived there and we had just standing room only. And what happened? At the beginning of the game, I was struck by the fact that they turned all the lights off in the Bulls arena. And then they put one spotlight on, and Michael Jordan ran out, and the spotlight just illuminated him. See, that's what God the Holy Spirit does. Christ has sent his Spirit to illuminate him. Christ is our Redeemer. Christ has earned for us his Spirit. He has earned for us the grace so that when the Holy Spirit works in our heart and gently nudges us to pray, Christ has earned for us the grace to go to our Father by faith to come into his holy presence and pray and ask. Christ has earned for us the grace so that we can respond to the Spirit in obedience. So there can be emotion and there can be commotion, but guess what? Unless Christ is being celebrated for his person and work, God is not honored and God the Holy Spirit is not honored. The last thing we need to talk about is the consequence of quenching the Spirit. Or the consequence of fanning into flame the Spirit. You know, it is highly dangerous for us to quench the Spirit. I think that in the Reformed churches here in the United States, we don't talk about backsliding enough. It struck me that when I spent a couple weeks in Singapore with a missionary... That's where Jack and Judy had been too. What struck me is that in Singapore, there was this language that was used to refer to members who had come to church for a time and then had stopped coming or were weakening in the Christian faith. And the language of backsliding was used. Now, what was happening is that a lot of young people were being saved in their late teens, early 20s, were becoming confessing Christians against the objections of dad and mom. They were becoming baptized members of the Reformed Church. But then what happened is that some of those new converts backslid. Why were they backsliding? If they were elect, regenerated children of God, why were they backsliding? The answer is they were quenching the Spirit. They weren't fanning into flame the gifts that had been given to them. We see that in our churches too, don't we? We see it with grown men. We see it with dads. Backsliding. We see it with children. Backsliding. You know, one, one time in family visitation, I asked, I asked a member of our church where I was the pastor, I said, so did you grow spiritually in this past year? And the dad was very honest. He said, no, I don't think I did. If that's the case in our life, we are quenching the Spirit. We're not fanning into flame the Spirit. 
On the other hand, the fruit of fanning into flame the Spirit is that we grow in grace, we grow in love, we grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We become a greater blessing to the people around us. We're like a tree planted by the river that brings forth its fruit in season. We experience God's blessing. We're blessed in this way. It's interesting that John Calvin felt the need to emphasize sovereign grace in this context. He says, those, however, who infer from this that it is in man's option either to quench or to cherish the light that is presented to him so that they detract from the efficacy that is the power and the effectual nature of grace and extol the powers of free will, libertarian, you know, Arminian free will, reason on false grounds. For although God works efficaciously in his elect, and does not merely present the light to them, but God causes them to see opens the eyes of their heart and keeps them open. Yet as the flesh is always inclined to indolence, that is laziness, it has need of being stirred up by exhortation. And then Calvin says this, but what God commands by Paul's mouth, he himself accomplishes inwardly. And there he really is quoting something that Augustine, the church father, said. One time in Rome, a British monk named Pelagius listened and overheard some people in Rome reading from Augustine's confessions where Augustine prayed to God and said, give what you command. Pelagius got all mad about that. He said that implies that we don't have the power in ourselves to do what God commands us. But that's exactly what Augustine's point was. Calvin makes the same point. God commands each one of us today, do not quench the spirit. He commands fan into flame the gifts that the spirit has given to you. And Calvin's point is this. We need to humbly go to God and say, God, give what you command. And Paul recognizes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, that God is sovereign over the pursuit of holiness. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't quench the spirit. Fan into flame the spirit and in that way experience the joy of the Holy Spirit burning away sin in your life, helping you to grow in grace so you can be a great blessing, dads, to your kids, to your wife. Grow in grace, kids, even though it's summertime, you're not in school, you're in the school of Christ. Grow in grace so you can be a blessing to dad and mom. And may God give us this week what he has commanded us today. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would fill us with the Spirit so that we can comply with your demands. You command us to glorify you. You command us to delight in your Son. You command us to love our brothers and sisters. And we pray that you would strengthen us through the use of the means of grace. Give us a thirst for the Word. Also, in the midst of our trials, give to us the powerful grace we need to pray. And we pray, O God, that you would now grant to us rest today, true spiritual rest, even as we study your word and meditate on it and give ourselves to spiritual exercises on this holy day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.